got it. Now I can walk away from the pulpit. We're going to be in the book of Leviticus this morning. And then also, if you would like to, if you have your Bibles, want to thumb mark uh, the book of Hebrews as well. We're going to be going back and forth in those books. So I got a quick question before we get started. I'm going to try and figure out who my people are in this room. How many of you, when it comes to like dealing with finances, you are the receipt saver? in the family. So like you go to Casey's, order something, and they're like, would you like a receipt? And your answer is always, yes, I would. Yep, got a couple of you. How many of you are the complete opposite? And you don't even look, (laughs) some hands are already going up. You don't even look at your bank account. It's like, "Uh, we got some money and that's all that matters. We, We don't need to keep track of it, anything like that. So uh, I hope this doesn't lessen your opinion of me. Um, And maybe if you've known me for a little bit, you already know I'm weird um, and I'm OCD. Now I'm not super weird because there are the super weird people who need even those letters to be in alphabetical order like CDO. And I'm just weird, I'm not super weird. And so some of my quirks are um, numbers have to be in increments of five. So like the other day, Heather and I were driving, she turned up the volume, it hit 52, and it's like, what are you thinking? Turn that down. So she goes to 49, and it's like, are you trying to have us wreck? It's gotta be 50. And you would think after four years of marriage, she would understand this about me, but she was, I think it was just she was being conniving. Um, So that's one thing. I, I need things to be very organized and in their place. But one thing that I'm also very obsessive about is finances. Like I, I'm the receipt keeper. I, I take that and right away I'm, I'm putting it in our account and in my ledger and everything. And I'm like, do we have enough money? Let's just make sure. Let's, let's know where our dollars are going because I know people try and steal and banks make mistakes. So I want to know what's going on. And it's come to the point even that I get so obsessive about it that I have found a way to save money on buying gas. And so I'm going to share, just in case you too would like to become obsessive about gas saving like me, and you would like to to take in my plan. So buckle up, because this actually has a purpose, but we'll see if you can track along. There's three apps that I use. No, that's not even true. There's five apps that I use to track my gas. So one is called Gas Buddy, and so what that does is you can pull it up and it'll show you the gas prices of everything around. And so I first go on GasBuddy and I applied for the GasBuddy card because it gives you automatically a three cent discount at everything. But then there's other places that you can activate a deal. And so like this morning I did this. Casey's was 10 cents off a gallon. And it's like, sweet, Casey's 329, 10 cents off, 319. I looked, Dollar General was still 309. No, sorry. Casey's was 319. It was 309. Dollar General was still 309. So then I go to this other app called Upside that also allows me to activate a deal that was another 10 cents off. So now I'm 20 cents off a gallon. So I'm paying 299. They're giving me money for this stuff. So then I do that. And then while I'm tracking that, I also track like how many miles my car has. So I go in another app to track how many miles. And so I put that in and it tells me how many miles per gallon I got and when I filled up and everything like that. Then I go to another app once it's all done and I punch all my information in and I ask for the receipt so I can scan the receipt and I get 25 points. And once you hit 15,000, you get a cash back card. So I'm like, 
pennies are being saved. Then when it's all done, because I keep track of my finances, I open up my ledger book, uh, app and I track the expense there. And then I open up every dollar to show me how much money is in our budget and I track the expense there. Are you tracking with me? Everybody ready to follow along with this plan? So, I mean, seriously, today I already saved like a dollar. And I mean, I know what you're probably thinking. Um, wow, you're ridiculous. Uh, Heather would agree. But also, you might be thinking that's too much. Like by the end of all that, all you've done is you've saved a dollar. I have saved $10, people, in the last three months. So if, if you want McDonald's, I'll buy. <laughs> we, we can't go anything more expensive than that, though, because I don't have that much money. Um, but anyways, it's like you, you might be thinking like, okay, that is uh, a lot to do. That is r ridiculous. And that seems not even like it's really worth it. And the reason that I open up with that is because to me, one, it is worth it because I'm saving pennies. And if you watch your pennies, your dollars will take care of themselves. That's what my mama taught me. And so uh, it's worth it to me. But also the view that a lot of you probably have towards that is probably the same view I would say a vast majority of people in America have about the book of Leviticus. That Leviticus is exhaustive, it's exhausting, it's burdensome, and is it really worth it to read? That whenever we come to these flyover passages, remember that's kind of what we a lot of times view the Old Testament as. Those passages that, you know what, we live in the New Testament era, we live in the New Covenant, that's all old, outdated, it doesn't really have anything to do, so let's just skip it and get to the good stuff. Like Genesis, cool, it's narrative. Exodus, first half, is narrative, it's exciting stuff. Then you get to the legislative stuff. And then you get to Leviticus, which is just pretty much all legislative, and it's like, I, I don't understand it. It's weird, it has outdated rituals, ceremonies, and regulations. So why should I read it? I'm glad you asked that. That's what we're gonna be talking about this morning as we continue to go through each book in the Old Testament. And we're just seeing, first off, what that book is about so that we have an understanding when we read these books of what it is that we're reading, but also we're gonna be looking at how Jesus falls into those books. Because again, each book in the Bible, Jesus is the central figure. It all points to Jesus. And so I'm gonna ask if you'll join me as we open up in a word of prayer and then we will dive into the book of Leviticus. So Father God, we come before you. And God, we are so grateful for who you are. God, I just pray that as we open up your word this morning, God, I just ask that you would speak to us. Show us who you are in our passage and in our reading. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray this, amen. So again, Leviticus is full of just a lot of Old Testament stuff, but there's three things that I really feel like Leviticus shows us. When you're reading through it, it will show you the heart of God, the holiness of God, and then the standard that God sets for his people. Those are three things that when you're reading through Leviticus, you can see God pouring out for us, that you're seeing his heart to be with his people. 
that he desires to be among us. Remember at the end of Exodus, God told Moses to the detail, this is how you are to build the tabernacle and I am going to dwell among you so that you can worship me. And that is God's heart to be with us. But because of the holiness of God, we need to be holy as well so that we could enter into the presence of God. And that's where God gives us his standard. If you want to enter into God's presence because God is holy and we want to be near to the heart of God, we too have to be holy. And Leviticus shows us how to be holy. So what Leviticus does is, if you're a note taker, here we go, get ready to write, we're gonna go through this. Leviticus is important because it is a book that is com- or quoted on 40 times in the New Testament. In 27 chapters, you have this entire book being quoted 40 times in the New Testament, and it is vital to understanding the book of Hebrews. That if you read Hebrews without understanding Leviticus, you don't really understand a lot of what Hebrews is telling us. But when you read Leviticus, it is the concept to understanding the book of Hebrews. The name Leviticus, it comes from the Hebrew word wayara, and it means he called. The Greek calls it ludicon, and it is that which pertains to the Levites. And then the Latin Vulgate calls it what we know it as Leviticus. Even though Leviticus deals with the tribe of Levi, it does not deal with all the tribe of Levi. It is a specific portion of that tribe which will become the priests. So the author of Leviticus, just like the first two that we talked about, Moses, the next two, just to give you answers for that test, it's going to be Moses as well. He wrote the first five books of the Bible. The audience again, is the people of Israel. But again, there's that specific tribe inside the Israelite uh, nation, and that is the tribe of Levi. And specifically inside the tribe of Levi, it is those who are going to become the priests. The date, it was written in 1440, or it wasn't written in 1445, but it takes place in 1445. So the people of Israel exit Egypt, In 1446, a year later, God establishes the tabernacle, and then it is right after that that he shares with Moses what happens in Leviticus. The main characters, you're going to have the nation of Israel, and then we've mentioned it a couple times already. You're going to have the tribe of Levi, specifically the priests in that tribe. The main events, you have God giving his moral, his civil, and his ceremonial law. So his moral law is the one that we're familiar with, like do not murder, do not steal. How are you going to behave as the people of God? The civil law is how the nation of Israel is going to be ran as God's chosen people. And then the ceremonial law is how do we get to enter into worship with God? Being ceremonially clean, and then there's the alternate of that, that you can be ceremonially unclean. You have then also, it shows the sacrificial system to be able to be in relationship with God. The location is this is given at the foot, or actually on top of Mount Sinai. There are three main themes to Leviticus, that when you understand these are the themes, it helps you understand what Leviticus is about. The first theme 
is atonement. This is the Hebrew word kipper. So if you ever look at your calendar and you see a day that says Yom Kippur, that is the day of atonement. It is a Jewish holiday or festival that they celebrate the day that they had their sins atoned for. And atonement means to be covered, that your sins are covered. This word is repeated 52 times throughout the book. You're gonna see atonement over and over. You offer this sacrifice for atonement. The priest should offer atonement to cover their sins. So you have atonement, you have holy, which means to be set apart or to be sacred. This word occurs 92 times in the book of Leviticus. It is a key word, not only about us as God's people to be holy, but also about God himself, that he is a holy God. You have one that starts hitting a lot after chapter 18, and it is the word, I am the Lord. This is the word that God gave to Moses in Exodus chapter three, when Moses is being called to free the people of Israel out of Egypt. And Moses says, who do I say sent me? And God says, I am. And then he says, I am the Lord says, I will go with you. So that is what God continues says. He says, you should be holy because I am the Lord. This word is repeated 49 times. And so you see this repetition of the words in there, atonement, holy, and I am the Lord. Leviticus is God's guidebook for his people on how to live. Again, morally, this is how you behave. Civilly, this is how you run your nation. And then ceremonially, this is how you enter into fellowship with God. There's also this repetition of the word clean and unclean. We mentioned that where God says that you should not eat this because then you will be unclean. You can eat all this and you'll be clean. If you touch any body that is dead, you'll be unclean. If, you're, if a woman is in her time of the month, she's unclean. If a, a bodily discharges make you unclean, sores on your body makes you unclean. And a lot of times when we hear those words, we think of it as like, oh, if you're clean, you're more righteous than everybody else. And if you're unclean, you're less righteous. And that's not really the understanding there. It's more like the permission to play. Like if you are clean, it allows you to take part in fellowship and worship of God. It's kind of like modern day voting is kind of a breakdown that I read. That like, if you register to vote, it means you are allowed permission to vote. If you're not registered to vote, it doesn't necessarily mean you're any less American than those who are registered to vote. It just means you don't get to participate in that activity. If you are clean, it doesn't mean you're more righteous than everybody else. It just means you are allowed permission to enter into the presence of God. And being clean also shows God's people. This is how we are to be set apart from everybody else. We are to be morally pure as well. The outline of the book, the first 17 chapters talk about the sacrifices that God commands. The second half of the book talks about the sanctification that God expects his people to live by. That's where you start seeing a lot of the holy and a lot of the you will live and behave this way because I am the Lord. Leviticus has a lot of typologies about Jesus. 
First off, you have the five different offerings. You have the burnt offering, you have the peace offering, you have the grain offering, you have the sin offering, and then you have the guilt offering. All those represent in some way the ministry of Jesus. Then you have the high priest. Aaron, he was the first high priest. He was the go-between the people of Israel and God. And Jesus is our great high priest. He is the go-between between us and God. And then Leviticus talks about seven feasts that occur. You have the Passover in which you had the substitutionary death of the Lamb of God. We talked about that last week in Exodus, where every year they celebrated the Passover when God passed over those who had the blood on their doorposts and God helped deliver the people of Israel out of Egypt because of that. Jesus died on Passover. You have the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and this is where on the night of the Passover, God told them, prepare for you yourself bread that is unleavened so that on an instant moment they can leave so that they are ready to go. And every year they were to celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread. You have the Feast of first fruits, where Christ's resurrection is the first fruit of the resurrection of all of us. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 20 talks about that. Where Paul says, if Christ is not raised from the dead, we of all people are to be pitied beyond anybody else. And then he goes on, but Christ in fact has been raised from the dead, the first fruit of those who have fallen asleep. Interesting fact, Jesus raised from the dead on the feast of first fruits, foreshadowing that he is the first fruit of those who are to be raised from the dead. You have Pentecost. This is the day that the Holy Spirit fell on the believers in Acts chapter 2. And then you have three that talk about the association with the second coming of Jesus. That's the Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, and the Tabernacle. And so where Exodus showed the redemption and establishment of Israel as their own nation, Leviticus shows how that nation is supposed to live as a holy people set apart for God. So again, we see what Leviticus is about, but honestly, we're still kind of left with this question when we get through all of that even. Okay, that's what it's about. It was about something long ago. Why is it so important for us today? The reason that it is important is because even though the sacrificial system has ceased because Jesus fulfilled it all, we are just as they were called to be holy, we ourselves are called to be holy. Because again, Leviticus shows us the heart of God, that he desires to be with his people. But he shows us the holiness of God. And therefore, because he says, I am the Lord, we too are called to be holy. And then lastly, he shows us his standard. And it's not a standard that I set where it's like, I think you're being good enough so you can go, yeah, yeah. You know, we, we like to do nepotism or favoritism where it's like, I'm gonna hold the people I like to a lower standard and the people I don't like, I'm gonna hold them to a higher standard. Like if, for example, I like myself pretty well. And so if I fall short, it's like, ah, you know what? I can justify that. That really wasn't that big of a deal. 
Whereas if somebody who already kind of gets under my skin a little bit does the exact same thing, I want to be like, oh my goodness, I cannot believe you do that. You are such a horrible person. Nobody in this room falls under that category. But I actually fall under that category all the time. But it's like, you know, we hold this favoritism, and so I hold other people to my standard. And I hold myself to my standard. But God has set a standard that we are to live by. And Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 5, he says that we are to be perfect. That's the standard. And so when we read through Leviticus, we are seeing the standard that God has set for us to be in relationship with him. If you want to be able to worship God under the old covenant, under the old law, this is how you need to live. This is how your life should be. And so we see this right away in Genesis, where God desires to be with his people. He wants to dwell among us. And Leviticus answers the question of how can a sinful man approach God? Because you have in Genesis, God creates everything and he says it is good. He creates man and he says it is very good. And it says in verse 25 of chapter 2, Adam and Eve were naked and unashamed. Not only with each other that they were able to be fully exposed and have no guilt, no shame, but they were able to be fully exposed to God and they had no guilt and no shame. That from that moment, they were unadulterated in their relationship with God. They were just able to be fully exposed, fully known, and they were naked and unashamed. And then you have that moment in Genesis chapter three, where they eat of the fruit. And they realize the moment they eat the fruit, they realize their eyes are opened. And this is uh, in verse seven, it says the eyes of both were open and they knew that they were naked. They went from being naked and unashamed, eating the fruit and they're like, whoa, our eyes are open. Something is not right here. And so it says they sewed fig leaves together and made for themselves loincloths. Because right there we see what Leviticus is full of is Leviticus is telling us that our sin has to be covered over. It needs to be atoned for. But Leviticus chapter 22 tells us that there is only one way for our sin to be covered. And it is by blood. It, or not chapter 22, chapter 17. It says only blood can be the atonement for our sin. It is the blood that makes atonement by the life. Hebrews chapter nine tells us, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Did you catch what Adam and Eve tried doing there? They ate of the fruit. Their eyes were opened. They realized they were naked and they were ashamed. So they sewed for themselves garments of fig leaves. They tried to cover over their own sin. They tried to make atonement for themselves. And then it says in verse 21, the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. They couldn't cover themselves. God had to atone 
for their sins. And it had to be through blood, through the sacrifice of some animal, because his garments were made of skin. Leviticus 22 says it's not just any blood. It says it has to, in order for it to be accepted, it must be perfect and without blemish. So this is where we get the five offerings that God commands in the book of Leviticus because they're kind of confusing. And so first off, you have the burnt offering. The first three offerings are voluntary offerings. They are acts of worship and responses on behalf of the person making the sacrifice. So you have the burnt offering, and it was a voluntary act of worship. That man, God, I just love you. I'm going to give you a burnt offering. But then also it was a mandatory offering in that it was atonement for sins. Then you have the grain offering, which was a voluntary act of thanksgiving of what God has already provided for you. It's like God just gave you this abundant crop, and it's like, God, thank you. I'm going to give you some back because of how much you, has, you have blessed me. I mean, this is kind of like we don't do this in grain, but with like finances, where it's like, you know what? It has been such a fruitful year. Uh, we're just going to give back some more to God. Like, we're not just doing the tithe, we're going to go above and beyond. We are going to give him a thanksgiving offering for how good he has been to us. Then you have the peace offering. This was an offering of thanksgiving and fellowship. My favorite kind of offering because a meal was usually associated with it. It was everybody in the community brought something and they made it as an offering to the Lord. And then they said, let's feast. Let's, because of what God's done, we are at peace with God. We are at peace with each other. Let's sit down and break a meal together. And they had the peace offering. And then the last two offerings were mandatory. You had the sin offering. And it was just that. It was an offering to make atonement for your sin and to cleanse you from defilement. And then the second one is the guilt offering, and it was pretty much the same one. You offered it because of the guilt of who you were or the nation or the priest. And so all of those answer the question of how we can worship God, how we can be in fellowship with God, and then how we can have atonement for our sin. But there's a problem that Leviticus has that it does not answer. And I'm not saying there's something wrong with the Bible. But there's, there's something that Leviticus could never answer. And it's found in Hebrews chapter 10, where it says, It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. You see, you could continually come, and you could, even if it was like, oh man, I just, say, say you uh, were a dude, and you looked at somebody, a woman with lust in your mind, and you were like, oh man, I just committed adultery, I need to go, and in order to be right with God, I need to offer a sacrifice. So I'm going to give him the best of my crop, and then literally the next day, you do the exact same thing. And it's like, all right, another sacrifice, next day, another one, another sacrifice, and you continually offer that sacrifice it's not covering your sins. The blood of bulls and goats could never take away your sins. Let me rephrase what I just said. It could never take away your sins. It could only cover your sins. You still are in your sins. And so just as much as my system of budgeting can be exhaustive and burdensome and really seem worthless, 
That's what the Levitical law could become. Burdensome, exhaustive, and not ever truly fulfilling what you needed. Because Hebrews chapter 10 verse 3 says that this system, what it did is it served as a reminder of sins every year. It reminded us that even if God would say, you want to know how to live? Let me write it in detail for you. You want to know how to be my people? Let me spell it out for you. We still could not uphold that. We still could not hold and measure up to the standard that God has given us. And so it was continually a reminder of our sins, that we are not truly perfect, that we are not truly holy. That as Paul says in Romans, he says, I didn't know what coveting was until the law told me to covet. But then my heart just wanted to covet. Because the thing is, I thought I could keep God's perfect moral, civil and ceremonial law. I thought I could be right with God by upholding his law. And instead, it shows me I can't. It shows me I need a savior. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 1 says, The law is but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of the realities. It can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, if you were perfect, you would, the, the sacrifices would not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin. But instead, in these remind sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. David tells us in Psalm chapter 51, where he has committed adultery with Bathsheba, and then he says, God created me a clean heart and renew a right spirit within me. Later on, he goes on to say, you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering, God. The sacrifices that you desire are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. You see, what the law did is it tried to adjust the outward actions. It tried to take our behaviors and change how we behave. But the problem is, is it wasn't coming into our heart. It was kind of like a fake it until you make it kind of thing. Where I'm just going to, I'm going to obey the law, I'm going to uphold the law, and I hope someday my heart will follow, but I'm just going to keep upholding these things, and someday I hope that I can be perfected with God. And the thing is, is that people thought they were able to be right with God through the law. We see this in Mark chapter 10, where the young man comes before Jesus and he says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What part of the law should I keep that will get me right with God? So Jesus responds, you know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And so the rich young ruler says to Jesus, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. So he's like, hey, what, what part of the law can I keep? So Jesus says, well, the outward actions. Don't kill, don't steal, don't commit adultery, don't murder. That would be kill. Uh, you know, don't lie. Honor your father and mother. And he's like, sweet, I've done those. 
I'm right with God, aren't I? And Jesus goes on to say, one thing you lack, sell everything you have because your heart is not right with God. Another place we see this where people thought, if I can uphold the law enough, I can be right with God, is in the Pharisees. Where they thought that because they were clean, they were actually more righteous than everybody else. And Jesus has some severe words to them and anybody else who thinks it's because I behave better than everybody else that I'm right with God. He says in Matthew chapter 23, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside you are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, and the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly you appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you outwardly appear righteous to others because you can uphold the law, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. That's what the old covenant did. It it started getting these people in the mindset of, I kept it. I'm good with God because I attend services, I tithe, I don't cuss, I don't get drunk, I don't go out and party, I've been faithful, so because I can keep all these moral obligations, God and I are kosher and I can get into heaven when our hearts are far from them. Jesus actually says, woe to these people for they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Whereas the outward or the law changed the outward action but the inside was a lot of times left untouched the new covenant came in to change the inward heart so that the outward actions are then changed jeremiah 31 says this behold the days are coming declares the lord when i will make a new covenant with the house of israel and the house of judah not like the covenant that i made with their fathers on the day when i took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. No longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sins no more. So how is it that the continual offering system that never takes away the sins of people could never perfect them, but instead it was a continual reminder of sins? How is it that that never worked? Because again, it covered our sins, but it never took our sins away. Going back to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 8, the writer says, When he said, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second, and that by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. 
When Christ offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemy should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Where the old law required outward obedience, the new covenant changes us from within. It changes our hearts and our actions follow the new hearts that we have received. The holiness that we receive, it does not come from us. It does not come from me being good enough. It comes from God. It comes from Jesus and his holiness and his spirit coming into me. So no longer is it that I am trying to abide by Leviticus and all these laws. Instead, I have Jesus in me. And because Jesus is in me, I am holy before God. But that doesn't mean that I get to continue and live how I want. That doesn't mean that God's moral law, his way for us to live is no longer his heart. Because Peter goes on to say, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. For you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So again, how can sinful people approach a holy God? It's not through the sacrificial system of Leviticus. It's through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. It's through what Christ did for us. So one last question I want to ask in closing is why would God do that? Have you ever wondered about that? If God had already set up this system of sacrifice and he said, you want to be right with me? Uphold my law. I mean, he, he did that. Why would God then be like, you know what? I'm going to give my most prized possession. I'm going to watch my son be tortured and abused and humiliated. And I'm going to give him as that sacrifice so that no longer do they have to live by that. They just receive Jesus and they are holy. Why would God do that? Would you make that exchange? Would you do that? That would be like, for example, if I said, okay, I will give you $10,000. This is totally hypothetical. I don't have that kind of money. But if I said, I will give you $10,000. If you come and you paint my entire house, you finish laying my floor, you make my house spotless. You get $10,000. And then you start and I see a couple nicks and I see some spots and you're taking days off and you're showing up late. And so then I'm like, you know what? Don't worry about it. I will paint it all. I will finish all the work. I'll do it all. And you cannot only, you're not going to get $10,000. Here's a million. Now we've just totally gone crazy. But yet that's a glimpse of what God did. Where God said, this is how you can be right with me. 
This is how you can abide and have fellowship with me by keeping my law. And it's like, oh man, you guys are messing it up. So I'm going to fulfill the law because Jesus came not to abolish it, but to fulfill it. So I will fulfill it in my son so that not only can you have relationship with me, you can be completely with me, where you are not only naked and ashamed, you are naked and unashamed. And on top of all of that, you get the inheritance. You get everything that is mine, it is yours. Why would he do that? Because God loves you. And I feel like that word love kind of is abused today because like, man, I love a good steak. And it's like, man, really? That's how much God loves me? Like you love a good steak? I cherish my family. It's a whole different level that God cherishes you. That the level of love that God has for you is one that we cannot understand. That there's a song that we sing, our worship leader would know it, but, um, and it says that if there was enough ink to fill all the oceans in the world, it still would not be able to write how much God loves you. He cherishes you so much that he gave his only son, that he fulfilled the standard so that we could be with him. I've been reading this book and it's called The Awe of God. And this week it talked about this and it's by John Bevere. And he said this, he said, God so deeply cherishes you, he knows the number of hairs on your head. Science estimates most humans have 100,000 hairs on their scalp. So if you had put 10,000 people in a room and you were to make a guess of how many, of who has 99,569, even if you guessed that correctly, you'd be wrong because they also say every hour you lose 50 to 100 hairs. But God knows exactly how many hairs are on your head. Scientists also have said that in a foot-by-foot cube of sand, depending on how big the molecules are and how tightly condensed it is, there are between five, let me make sure I say this correctly, there are between 500 million to a billion granules in one cubic square foot. One cubic foot, that didn't make sense. You know what the Bible tells us? Psalm 137, how precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. So in one cubic foot, we're talking about a billion granules. Now take that by all the sand in the entire world. And that is how much God thinks about you. And the thing is, it's like, what? Like that's unfathomable. That's hard to think about, first off. But also, God does not exaggerate. I exaggerate. We as humans exaggerate. God does not exaggerate. He thinks of you more than the number of sand on the earth. That's why God would make that exchange. Because he is so deeply in love with you. He determined your value. And he said, I'm willing to pay the price for what they're worth. Because again, that's the thing. If, if our value, and I, I know this is hard because especially uh, I know a lot of us in here and we're like, nah, like show us how miserable we are. Like we wanna know about just 
the fallen nature. Don't tell us our worth. To remind us, bring us down a little bit. And it's like, but the reality is, God loves you. And if your value was one penny less than the price he paid, he wouldn't have made that exchange. He would not pay more for something that is less value. When I read that, it was hard to grasp. It was like, there is no way God loves me as much as he loves his son. There is no way my value to God is the same value as Jesus. It's scriptural. John chapter 17, verse 23. Jesus is praying on the night that he is going to die. And he says that his prayer is that the world may know that God sent him and loved us just as much as God loved Jesus. That they may know that God, you love them as much as you love me. Well, he's talking about the disciples, right? John chapter 17, verse 20. He says, I do not ask only for my disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's us. That God loves us just as much as he loves Jesus. That in a world where people are wondering, what's my identity? What's my worth? What's my value? Jesus shows us. He says, your value is worth me giving my life. Because you could not be right with God through the old sacrificial system. It covered your sins, but it never took away your sins. My blood removes your sins. Psalm 103 says, as far as the east is from the west, that's how far he not covered. He removed our sins from us. Because God loves you. So much that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. So we are holy before God because of the covering of his son's blood. So the response to that is what Paul tells us in Romans 12. He says to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable. No longer is there a sacrificial system. Jesus' blood fulfilled that, but on a daily basis, I sacrifice my life for Christ. I die to my desire so that I can live for his will. That's our response to what he has done for us. Father God, I thank you for fulfilling the law so that, God, there is freedom, as Galatians says, for freedom you have set us free through Christ. God, thank you so much for that. Thank you for the love that you have for us. And God, it's almost overwhelming to think about that you cherish us as much as you cherish your own son. But yet that's what you said, that Jesus prayed that we may know that you love us as you love him. And so God, I just pray that that's what works in our hearts, that we see who you are and what you've done so that we can be in perfect relationship with you through Jesus. And God, that as the writer of Hebrews says, that we can with confidence approach the throne room of grace. God, may we do that. Work in our hearts and just let us know who you are and let us respond by offering our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to you, which is our true and proper worship. It's in the name of Jesus we pray this.
Amen.